Man, this week has uh, this week has been a good week for for uh, for our church because we've had lots of new things happening this week. Uh, I want to say a big congratulations. I know they're not here to Curtis and Jody Radford. Uh, they had a little baby girl on Thursday morning. A little girl named Violet, just a beautiful little girl, went and saw her in the hospital on Thursday. And we've had three little girls born in the last year that literally were born with like a full head of hair that you could put ponytails in from day one. So congrats to them on and uh, and their new little girl. Uh, con- congratulations to Luis and Courtney, now Placencia, uh, to uh, two folks in our church. Um, they were two of the first people in our church who became Christians. Uh, as, as a result of the ministry of our church, two of the first to be baptized, and last night uh, we married them. Um, and uh, man, just a beautiful wedding ceremony. It was so funny. We were at the reception, uh, and man, the reception was just so much fun. But I was there, and, and a few families from our church were there with me. Uh, and you should have seen the ladies in our church out on the dance floor dancing, um, like led by my wife, who... Um, <laughs> Who are you talking to on your cell phone right now? Tell them that I said hello and just tell them I'm preaching and everything is cool and we'll, we'll talk later. Um, but they were like out there on the dance floor. It was funny because, you know, they were out there having a good time. And I was watching my wife and she did something that was that was it, it was wildly attractive. Um, but it, but it was like, well, you know, they're out there. And I leaned over to one of the guys sitting with me um, and I said, you know, I, I officially after watching our wives, I don't um, I, I officially think that we are no longer Baptist. You know, you know how. Um, you know, when Dorothy told Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, uh, it was like at the wedding reception last night, it's like, we're not in, in we, I don't think we're allowed to be Baptists. I think they officially outruled uh, uh, ruled that illegal uh, a few years ago. Um, and then, they, you know, they were doing the dance thing, cutting the cake and having a good time. And they had like, have you ever been like at a dance or having, you know, at a party? And like they get a circle and like people take turns inside the circle like dan- like the people who can really dance, like get inside the circle and like everyone's cheering them on. Well, th- so they had this circle and Luis was dancing and Courtney was dancing. So I like went up to the edge of it. I was like, what's going on? And like guys that like do dances that have names, you know, they were like yelling out the names. They were, do this. And they were doing all this crazy stuff. And this guy jumped in the middle of it and was just going crazy and doing all this dance stuff. And I was like, look at that dude. And he turned to face me and it was Pastor Ryan. Um <laughs> I swear to God. And at that moment, I thought, we can't even be Methodist anymore because he's a preacher. My gosh. I mean, it was it was just crazy. The only, the only time I could get on, you know, the only dance I know is the electric slide, right? You know, two this way and two this way and two this way and then half and then back and, you know, then flip around. And they played a Spanish version of Achy Breaky Heart. Um, and and I, I was doing the electric slide. And as bad of, of a dancer as I thought I was, you know, after doing the electric slide to the Spanish version of Achy Breaky Heart, uh, I came back and Zerby was sitting there and he was like, dude, you know how to line dance? Um, and I was like, uh, you know, note to self, always dance by Zerb. Uh, and there will be there will be somebody who looks just a little stranger than me on uh, on the dance floor. But it's been a uh, it's been a fun week. Uh, of new things at uh, at Journey Church, but you know, not everything that's new always has a uh, always has a great beginning. I don't know if you if you heard this story. Right after Easter, um, a uh, mother had a baby at, at six months, so she had a baby three months early in Argentina, and because of complications with the pregnancy, obviously with it being born so early, the baby came out didn't have a heartbeat, and they pronounced the baby dead and continued to work on the mother to make sure that she was going to be okay. And 12 hours uh, after the baby had been pronounced dead. 
after they had put it down in the morgue, the mom and dad had still not seen the baby because they had to work on her before they took the baby away. And the, and the mom was just begging, please let me go down uh, and at least see my little girl. So 12 hours after the baby had been born dead, uh, they went down to the morgue. Uh, they opened the refrigeration system. They pulled out the little girl uh, and they opened the box and she was alive in the morgue, uh, in a coffin, uh, in the refrigerator at six weeks old. Uh, and she is alive, and she's well. They, they named her Luz Milagros, uh, which means, uh, in that language, uh, means little miracle. Because she was a little miracle, and she's alive, and she's doing well. As we get into our bedtime story of the day, we're in a series at our church teaching through some of the greatest stories of the Bible. We're going to look at a little miracle baby today who, who very much like this little girl in Argentina, was put away... Uh, not knowing what would happen to him. Um, and when they found him and pulled the lid off the box that he was in, he had one of the greatest lives uh, in biblical history. His name is Moses. We're going to study a story in Exodus chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 2. If you didn't bring your Bible today, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. We'd love for you to have the opportunity today to have a Bible in your hand. So if you don't have a Bible or if you forgot a Bible, just wave at our ushers. They'll give you one so that you can study the Bible with us today in Exodus. Exodus is one of the very first books in the Bible, Genesis than Exodus. So if you're not quite sure where to start, just open the cover of your Bible. You'll flip through Genesis, about 50 chapters worth. The top of the page will show Genesis in the chapter. And you're going to find your way to Exodus chapter 2. And today we look at the life of a man named Moses. Now, the name Moses means drawn out of the water. That's why he was named that. Uh, Moses was not born without a heartbeat. Uh, but Moses was born in a place where they were killing babies. Uh, Moses was born as a slave in Egypt. Y'all know where Egypt is on a map. Uh, and the Israelites had been slaves of the Egyptians for more than 400 years. Our ushers are going down the aisle. If you didn't get sermon notes or a pen and you want to take some notes today, just holler at them and they'll give you something to write with. Uh, but the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for more than 400 years. And it got to the point where they're very much like in the Roman Empire. There were more actual slaves then there were Egyptians, and the Egyptians said, you know what, anytime these slaves have baby boys, we need to kill them or they're going to overrun us. So the report given to the midwives was, was, look, when you give birth, if it's a boy, we want you to take it and just throw it in the river and the crocodiles and the alligators will get them, uh, and that will work as our population control. Now, as crazy as that sounds, that's the exact same thing they're doing in India today. The ministry that we support in India, the Invisible Girl Project, in two weeks on July 8th, we'll be having our vision meeting for the trip we're taking to India in 2013. Brad and Jill McElyer, who lead that ministry, will be here. And their, their mission serves to rescue girls in baby villages. Uh, in India, if they live out in the remote villages and there's a baby, boor, a, a baby girl born, there is a midwife on behalf of the village who will take it and throw it in the river. Because girls are bad luck and girls aren't good in their religion and girls carry too much responsibility. So it's crazy to read the story of Moses and think the same thing is still going on today, but it is. So Moses was born and the person who delivered him happened to be a friend of his mother. And she said, look, I'm not going to kill him. We're going to hide him. So for the first few months of his life, they hid the baby. He nursed with his mom. He got healthy. But then, you know, as kids do, all of you have kids. He probably began to get a little noisy, began to get a little rowdy. And they thought we can't keep him in the house. Uh, because we're, they're going to find him, they're going to kill him. So they took him, and the Bible says that they made, um, they made a little basket, and they put him in a basket in the river, uh, and it was there that God preserved his life. Someone found him, and we enter into one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. And that's where we enter Exodus chapter 2, just kind of reading 
the little story of Moses' life. And before we jump into that, here's the first thing I want you to know. Because the title of my Bible study today, if there's a point to this Bible study, the point is this question. This morning, June 24, 2012, does God have your attention? Does God have your attention? Are you listening to what God has to say to you in your life? Are you doing what God wants you to do in your life? Are you making your decisions based on what God would want you to make decisions on? Does God have your attention right now? You know, all of us who have kids know that when our kids get locked into playing a video game or doing something, that sometimes you have to say their name five and ten times to get their attention. And it's the same way spiritually with a lot of us. I think there are some people in the room this, in this room this morning who God's been trying to get your attention and you've been ignoring. And my hope is that through studying this story this morning, my hope is that today God will get your attention and he'll reveal some things to you. But the first thing that I'm hoping God will reveal to you this morning is this. Number one, Moses, when we read scripture, we find out was born with a special purpose. And you can cross out Moses' name and you can put, I was born for a special purpose. Because you need to understand this morning, and maybe this is the only thing God wants to say to you this morning. You were born for a special purpose. God loves you. God knows you. God created you, and God has a very special purpose for your life. Regardless of what your background was, regardless of what your upbringing was, God puts you on this planet Earth because He loves you. He knows you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And he has a great, great plan for your life. In Exodus chapter 2, we begin to read the story of Moses in verses 1 through 10. And we'll just kind of break it apart as we go. It says, now a man of the tribe of Levi, you might circle or underline that word. I've kind of got it highlighted in, in my Bible, married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she couldn't hide him any longer, she got a papyrus basket for him. She coated it with tar and pitch. That's kind of like a, a wicker basket. Then she placed the child in it and she put him among the reeds along the bank of the knot. So she hid him down by the river. His sister would stand at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh would have been like the president of Egypt at the time, went down to the Nile River to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the river bank. And she saw the basket among the reeds. And she sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and she saw the baby. And he was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Yes, you know, so just that story itself is a message in itself. I, I mean, just the thought that Moses would be protected, Moses would be found. Not only was Moses found, I mean, Pharaoh's daughter would have known that he should have been killed. Those were the orders given for uh, Hebrew baby boys. But instead of killing him, she said, go find a Hebrew woman, which happened to be his mom. And she basically said, look, I'll pay you to raise your son for me. Is that cool with you? And Moses' mom said, that's cool with me. So she raised him until he was a child. And then she sent him off to live with Pharaoh, where he would become one of the leaders in Israel. But only after he learned all the Egyptian language, all the Egyptian culture, the things he would need to know to let him be a great leader there in Israel. But what's interesting is we find out that Moses was born the son of a Levite, 
uh, both a Levite mom and a Levite father. You say, well, what, what's the big deal about that? In Israel, they had 12 tribes or 12 basically family units that came out. And the Levites were the ones who it was their job in life to serve God. So if you were born to a Levite, specifically in the Old Testament, you were born to serve God. This tells us that Moses was born to serve God. It was his role in life. It was what God had designed him for. Moses was born to serve God, and he was going to serve him in an interesting way, but Moses was born to serve God. Let me ask you a question. Because we can know from Moses' childhood what he was going to grow up to be just because of the family that he was born into. When you were a kid... What did you want to grow up to be? I want you to think about that question. When you were in third grade or fifth grade or sixth grade or seventh grade, what did you want to be when you, grow, when you grew up? And, and I'll ask you, I wonder how many of you became what you wanted to be as a child. I wonder how many of you now at 25, 35, 45, 55 are still trying to find out what you want to be when you grow up, what your purpose is in life. It's funny, I, uh, you know, I, was, I was born and raised in a Christian home, and although I didn't totally understand you know, how to live for God, I felt from a young age. I was in fifth grade when I was at an old-fashioned revival at my Nazarene church that I went to um, in southern Ohio. It was actually in a little town called Wheelersburg, Ohio. Uh, and at the end of this little t- service that we were having at a real small little church there, Um, The pastor asked for anyone to come forward who felt like God was supposed to use them in life. And as a fifth grader, I was 10 or 11, I remember going down front that day and saying, God, I I think you're supposed to use me in life. I didn't really know what that meant, but I I just knew I felt like even from that young age that God was going to use me in some way. In our sixth grade yearbook, uh, if you can picture your sixth grade yearbook, uh, they had every sixth grader's picture, and underneath the picture of the sixth grader, they had listed their future occupation, what they were going to be. And I didn't even remember this until a few years ago. I was flipping back through the yearbooks at my mom and dad's house, and, man, you ever realize how awkward-looking you were when you were in the sixth grade? I mean, it was just, I was a weird-looking little kid. But, um, it, but I'm looking at the captions, and, you know, you see firefighter and police officer and professional basketball player and doctor and lawyer and all this stuff. And you get to little Christian Newsom. There I am in the sixth grade. And underneath my caption picture, it says preacher. And I thought, wow, I don't even remember doing that. But I started going through my friends and I thought, I wonder how many in sixth grade actually got it right. And it wasn't that I was smart. It wasn't that I was following God. There was just this sense that God wanted to use me. And, and how funny, you know, coincidental that that there I am in sixth grade saying, you know, I'm going to grow up and be a preacher. And now at 34, here I am a preacher. If I could take a time out this morning, I, I would want to tell you all this. If I could just get one thing through your head this morning. You were born for a special purpose. You were born for a special purpose. The Bible says in Jeremiah 1.5, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love to pray this for babies like Tina Ellsworth sitting down here. She's got a little girl that's about 22 and a half weeks. Am I right or am I awful week there? Kind of right in 21 and a half weeks. That's going to be born soon. I love to pray this prayer for ladies in our church that are pregnant before their kids are even born. Because God told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God told Jeremiah, listen, before you were even born, I knew who you were going to be. And I knew what I wanted you to do for me. I cared about you that much. 
In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 18, this is some of the greatest scripture in the Bible. God says, for you created, or uh, Psalmist David says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together while I was in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Here the psalmist is saying, before I was even born, you knew me. You loved me. You knew every day that I was going to live. You knew all the things I was going to do. You knew all the great things I was going to accomplish. And you knew all the horrible mistakes that I was going to make and some of the consequences I would endure because of those. Yet you think about me so often. I can't, if I were to try to count how often God thinks about me, if you were to try to count how often God thinks about you, if you were to try to count how often God thinks about your kids and how much he loves you and how much he loves your kids and how much he loves your family, you would, you would run out of numbers. Because God says, I think about you more than there is sand on the seashore. Have you ever gone to the beach and just picked up a handful of sand and tried to count how many grains of sand were there? God says, oh, I think about you more than you would ever know. I love you more than you would ever know. I, I have a purpose for your life more than you could ever understand. You see, if you need to hear anything today, you need to hear God has a special purpose for you. You look at your life and you see, you know, how did you end up in the current profession you're in? How did you end up in the city that you're in? So many of you are like me. I, I wasn't born in Kansas City. I never planned to be in Kansas City. Born in southern Ohio, went to college in Virginia, yet, yet here I am. This, this is where God designed me to live my life and do my ministry. You look at your life, you know, there's no coincidences in life. God has designed your life for you to be where you are, living the life you are, married to who you are, with your kids the way that they are, Working where you are so that you can make a difference and live life on purpose for him. You think you're living by coincidence or are you living by purpose? God has me exactly where he wants me because he loves me and wants to use me. Moses was born for a special purpose. But his purpose and his passion for that purpose needed a little work. You see, God had a a specific purpose for Moses But it took Moses a little while to understand what that purpose was and to be passionate about that purpose. And that's what we find in number two. As we read through the life story of Moses, we see that Moses was passionate about something that he had previously failed at. So he had this great desire. If you would have asked Moses when he was 40 years old, hey, Moses, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? Moses would have said, well, I'd really like to do this, but I tried it once and failed. And so I gave up. Moses would have told you at 40, I'm not really doing what I wish I was doing, but I tried it and I failed, so I I just, I settled for something else. In Exodus 2, as we continue the narrative of Moses being pulled out of the water and raised by his mother and then sent to live in the palace, we see, starting in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 15, it says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to watch where his people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. I think he was in his late 30s here. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way, looking that way, and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian, and he buried him in the sand. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? 
And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me like you killed that Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Then Pharaoh heard of this. He tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and he went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. It's really interesting as you trace Moses' younger life. Because what we find out is that about the age of 40, late 30s, 40, Moses got a real passion to see his people delivered. Moses got a real passion to see the Hebrew people not have to suffer under the Egyptians. Moses had so much of a passion to see the Hebrew people delivered that he thought, I'm actually going to do something about it. And he felt so strongly about doing something about it that he killed someone and buried them in the desert. That's how strongly he felt. But then he got so freaked out that what he did had become known. It said he left Egypt. He left the Hebrews. He left what he felt like God maybe had created him to do, make a difference, and he quit. And the Bible says, I love verse 15. It, it sums it up nice. It says he went and he sat down by a well. And the next time we see Moses, it's 40 years later, and he's still sitting by the same well. He quit. You know, I would guess that there are some people here who maybe when you were a teenager, you were so spiritually full of life. You tried to live for God and maybe you were a little overactive or maybe your parents didn't support you or, you know, maybe you went to college and were going to be this great ambassador for God and you kind of failed. So you just quit. You just sat down and thought, well, I, you know, I tried to live for God thing and it didn't work so well, so I'm just going to hang out by the well for the rest of my life. All right, you know, I wonder if you set out and you thought, you know, I'm going to have a great marriage. And like for a year or two, you tried to have a great marriage and you tried to love your husband or love your wife. And, you know, you wanted to have this great marriage, but after a year or two, it wasn't happening. And you thought, you know what? I tried. I failed. So you just sat down by the well and it's now five years or 10 years or 15 years later. And you're just kind of still sitting down by the well. Or maybe you wanted to be a great parent or maybe you wanted to start a business or maybe you wanted to witness to a friend. Or maybe you wanted to invite a neighbor to come to church. But you had these great plans. to. You felt like God on the inside wanted you to do something. And you tried to do it and it went wrong. And you said, well, I guess I'm not supposed to do that anymore. That's kind of where Moses was. You know, you need to write this down. It's not on your sermon notes, but you need to write this down. Spiritual failure does not have to be final. Spiritual failure doesn't have to be final. You don't have to quit because you fail. I thought it was so interesting. You, you, uh, those of you who go to church know I follow sports a little bit. I don't know if anyone watched the NBA championship this week, but the Miami Heat beat the Oklahoma City Thunder. Great series. Two great young players, LeBron James, Kevin Durant. Uh, but LeBron James finally won a championship. If you're in this room and you know who he is, you either like him or you hate him. He's not just a random person that, uh, that's out there. But what's interesting is, you know, everyone now that LeBron has won a championship, everyone's saying, man, can he be, uh, uh, can he be the next Michael Jordan? Can he be as good as Michael Jordan? And if you're in here and you grew up in my era, I mean, we watched as kids Michael Jordan playing, and you think there's no way. But I heard someone make an interesting point the other day. They said when LeBron James was a junior in high school, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. When Michael Jordan was a junior in high school, he didn't make his varsity team. He played JV. And they said, you know, it's failing early in life that allowed. And if you watch Michael Jordan, who, you know, I'm, not, I'm just not going to go there. He's not the friendliest guy in the world. But at his Hall of Fame press conference, he thanked both his high school coach, who demoted him to the junior varsity, and the guy who got to be on the varsity in front of him 30 years later in his Hall of Fame speech. He said, thank you, because that failure made me work harder. You see, failure doesn't have to make you quit. 
You know, some of you in this room used to be really passionate about serving God. You did serve God. You made a difference for God. And then something happened in your life where you quit or, and I've heard this dozens of times in this church, something happened in your old church to burn you out or to turn you off. And here, and here's what you did. You lumped God together with a bad church experience or an unfortunate run in with a pastor. And you said, I'm done serving God. I tried that. It didn't work. And you have sat down by the well and you just you are just still chilling by the well with the thought that I may never get plugged in again. God never lets you down. Churches do. Pastors do. People do. Our church will. I will. God won't. And we see that Moses, man, he had this great passion to do something. But he got to the point between the ages of 40 and 80 where he was paralyzed in his passion. And that's where some of you are this morning. You should write that down. You're paralyzed in your passion. If you could do something, you would do it, but you don't know if you'd be any good at it, so you quit. Moses was paralyzed in his passion. And because of that, we see Moses, number three, he had in his life just decided to exist rather than thrive for four decades. Instead of doing what God had called him to do, figuring out a way to help his people without just killing everyone. That was probably the wrong way. I mean, you know, he probably went about it the wrong way the first time. But instead of saying, okay, maybe there's a way other than just killing everyone, he just quit. And he thought, you know what, I guess I'll just live life not doing anything. I'll let someone else figure it out. And that's where the story continues in verses 16 through 23. Exodus chapter 2. So he's now sitting by a well. It says, Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. And some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to the rescue, and he watered their flock. Shows he's kind of a tough guy. Killed a guy the week before. Now he, he bowed up to a bunch of shepherds and said, Get out of here. I mean, when you look at some of these Bible characters, I mean, this was a strong dude. He, Kind of a fighter. Um, verse 18, when the girls returned to Raul, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He wasn't an Egyptian, but he looked like one. So he was dressed like one. He even drew water for us and he watered the flock. Where is he? Rule asked his daughters. Why'd you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom. What a horrible name that is. Um, and if that is your name, I apologize. Um, saying, uh, I've become a foreigner, in a foreigner land, in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God, and God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. You know, 40 years earlier, Moses saw what it took the Israelites 40 years to see. They need some help. This isn't what God created, this family which has become a nation. God didn't create us for this. We're not meant to be slaves our whole life. 40 years before the Israelites saw it, Moses saw it. And he thought, I'll do something about it. They didn't want his help. You can find out even 40 years later they didn't want his help. But finally, when God saw him, when God saw what was going on in Israel, He thought, you know, I only know one guy who was willing to take his life in his own hands to do something about this. So I'm going to go get him and use him. But where he found him was just hanging out in the desert, just existing, watching sheep. 
rather than thriving in life. Let me ask you this question. As you sit here today, are you thriving in life right now? Or are you just existing? Did you start something that would have been transformational in your life and your family's life and then you stopped it and now you're just like you're on cruise control? Maybe for your family this year in 2012 you started planning a vacation but then you just stopped and your family won't get a week together somewhere to just love each other and take some time off, turn the phones off, put the laptops away. Maybe as an adult you started to go back to school, finish your degree, get another degree, and like you got six or nine or twelve credit hours, and then you just stopped. You're just kind of existing, just halfway in between. Maybe you, maybe you started to write a book or you started to write a song. God prompted your heart to do something really creative like that. And like you started, then you just stopped. Or maybe as a family, you guys decided to start getting out of debt. And like for 90 days, you worked real hard to get out of debt. And then you just stopped. Or you started, um, and I'm going to apply this to everyone but me because this one doesn't count. But you know, maybe at one point in your life, you've like tried to start losing weight. You do that for like a week or 10 days. And then you drive past Lamar's. And it's like, you know, nobody buys donuts. They're going to go out of business. So you get a donut. And... Then you go to Chick-fil-A and order Papa John's. But that's it's not about me. That's just that could happen to somebody. But maybe you, you started started a diet and then you stopped. Or you started to witness to a friend. You started talking to him about Jesus and then it got uncomfortable, so you, you stopped. You started to get back on track spiritually. This was going to be the year you read your Bible and you prayed and you memorized verses and you did that for like a little bit and, and then you stopped. You see, Moses started and then he stopped. And for 40 years, he never started again. Man, I would hate for that to be the testimony of the people in this church. That at 15 or 18 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, God did something great in your life. And you got real excited about it and you started doing something. And then, and then you just stopped and you never finished. You decided to just exist through life instead of thriving. You, you get the point. You know what I'm talking about. And it reminds me of this verse. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 11:29, where Paul tells the church in Rome that God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. You say, what does that mean to me, Christian? That means this. When, when you feel like God lays something on your heart, he never changes his mind. You might, but he doesn't. Say, yeah, you know, I felt a few years ago like God wanted me to read my Bible through, but then I stopped. Well, did God tell you to stop? According to Romans eleven twenty nine, God never calls you to do anything and then changes his mind. I felt like God wanted me to do this, and you know, I started and then I just stopped. You say, man, I used to be really good at, and now I don't feel like... The Bible says that what God gifts you to do and what he calls you to do, he never takes back, he never changes his mind. His gifting and his calling are irrevocable. The passion you begin with, he wants you to continue with. He doesn't want you to be paralyzed in your passion. But Moses was, and a lot of us are. Moses needed what some of us need. He needed a kick in the rear end to get him going again spiritually. And that came in the form of, uh, number four, um, he needed something to get his attention. And it came in the form of, of what we know as one of the greatest Bible stories of all time, what, what we call the burning bush. We find it in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I love that they have like put a little fire on the screen, uh, a burning bush to help us remember Moses and the burning bush, uh, hopefully for the rest of your life. Um, in Exodus 3, 1 through 3, remember Moses, is, he's just existing in the desert, 40 years hanging out, had a passion to do something for God, tried it, didn't work so good, so he quit. 
married a lady, had a kid, gave him a really weird name. And now he's just a shepherd hanging out in the desert, right? Here's what it says in Exodus 3. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. Now, this is one of the greatest stories in the Bible. But what I love is how, you know, I think sometimes we, we take it out of context. We think that Moses saw this bush, he went right up to it, he and God began hanging out. I think that it's possible that Moses had watched this bush on fire for days, if not weeks, and wondered. Because it said, the only time he went up to it, it said he watched it. And then finally when he figured it out, you know, that bush is on fire, but it's not burning it up. I know you have to watch it for more than a minute to figure that out. Probably more than half a day to figure that out. Maybe after several hours, maybe after a couple days, maybe after a couple weeks, Moses was so thick-headed that God had to keep this bush on fire. I don't know how long, but this is one of the many things when I get to heaven I want to find out. Like, how long was that bush on fire? Finally, Moses, after watching this bush, thought, I'm going to go check it out. God got his attention. It took God doing something supernatural to get his focus off the sheep and back on God's purpose for his life. You know, you have to ask yourself, man, why don't we pay attention the first time? Why don't we pay attention the first time? Don't, don't you feel, after you didn't pay attention for the first time, don't you feel really dumb when it happens the second time and the third time and the fourth time? Have you ever got a speeding ticket in the exact same place by the exact same police officer? Like within a period of two weeks, Danielle? I'm just asking a question. I don't. I, I, I don't. I, um, I apologize. But that second time, I'm sure Danielle was thinking, she won't get a third one. Or I will take her license for a month or two. I promise you that. Why don't we pay attention the first time? Why don't our kids pay attention the first time? Why do we make so many of the same mistakes? You know, one of, one of the most humorous narratives in the Bible is in 2 Samuel chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. But in 2 Samuel chapter 14, uh, King David, who was, you know, David of David and Goliath. By the way, next week I'm teaching through the story of David and Goliath. It's going to be a cool Sunday. Come, bring your friends. It's going to be a fun one. Um, but David had, a, um, David had a son who he kind of got on the outs with. He and his son weren't getting along, and his son moved out of town because he and David were at odds with, with each other so much. And David was sad, and the son was sad, but David had a big ego, and he was like, you know, I can't let my son come back. And finally, the commander of his army said, look, David, let him come back. So David said, all right, you can tell, tell him to move back, but I don't want to see him. So his son, whose name was Absalom, moved back into town. And the Bible says that uh, after being in town for a little while and not getting to see his dad, uh, he told one of his servants, he said, go, go tell Joab I need to talk to him. Um, so the servant went and he found Joab and said, hey, Absalom needs to talk to you. And Joab said, yeah, I'll be right there. And he never went. So after a little while, the Absalom said, hey, go find Joab and tell him I need to talk to him. So the guy went and found Joab and said, hey, maybe you forgot, but uh, Absalom he wants to talk to you and like, figure out what's going on with his dad. Can you come? Joab said, yeah, I'll, I'll be right there. 
um, and he never came. So the third time, uh, Absalom called a servant, and he said, look, um, I want you to go burn Joab's house down. Um, and when he asked who did it, tell him I did, um, because I need to get a hold of him. So he did. Uh, and when Joab came, he said, why in the world did you do that? He said, oh, I've, I've been waiting on you to come. I just I needed to get your attention. Um, that's the story in 2 Samuel 14, 28 through 32. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. So Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. So he said to his servants, look, his field's next to mine, his barley's there. Just go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house. And he said, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said, look, I sent word to you. And I said, come here so I can send you to the king to ask why have I come from Gesher. It'd be better if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. You know, sometimes I feel like God sends us a message and another message and another message. And we say, yeah, God, be right there. Yeah, God, be right there. Yeah, God, I'm going to do that next Yeah, God, I'm going to do that next year. And God finally has to just set fire to something in our life to where we finally say, okay, God, you got my attention. What do you need? God had to get Moses' attention that he needed him to do something. I mean, not, not every time something goes wrong in your life is God trying to get your attention. But I, I'm telling you, if, if you feel like God's been trying to get your attention and you've not been paying attention, and then kind of your world stops, that might be a good time to stop and say, okay, like God, are you, just, are you trying to get my attention about something? What do you need me to do? And I, I pray that, I, that God never has to do something drastic to get my attention because I'll stay in his word and I'll keep surrounding myself with good Christian people who will speak into my life. But God had to get Moses' attention, and he did it through this burning bush. But here's what's interesting. Even after the bush burned up, there was one thing that kept Moses from being exactly where and what and how God needed him to be. And and I want you to see this in Exodus chapter 3. We find out in this narrative of Moses, Moses needed to remove what kept him from God's presence before God could step into his life and say, here's my purpose for you, and, and here's what we're going to do together. Exodus chapter 3, we pick it up in verse 4. Uh, we'll read through verse 10. So the bush is on fire. We don't know for how long. Moses finally goes over to it. It says, when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, ah, the bush is talking to me. No, he didn't say that. That's what I would have said. Um, Moses I still don't understand how Eve talked to a snake. Moses talks to a bush. I mean, maybe I'm more scared than they are, but that would freak me out. Moses said, yeah, here I am. He starts talking to this bush. Um, Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. You know, what's so interesting is, is, is so often we read this narrative and Moses goes over to the bush and God says, Moses. And Moses says, what? Uh, and God says, you need to take off your sandals 
Because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And we think of it in terms of, oh, his sandals were dirty. He would have defiled the holy ground. So he had to take off his sandals so he didn't get God's area dirty. I look at it another way. You know, in those days, you know, Moses did not wear croc sandals or sandals with big leather soles. He, he wore a sandal that would have been the thinnest strip of leather that would have just barely crossed his feet. I mean, it would have been microscopic, well less than a quarter of an inch that would have had some rope tied around it to keep it on his feet, just enough to, to keep his feet from bleeding when he stepped on a rock. And I picture it this way. God is saying to Moses, listen, Moses, you were like so close to having my holiness in your life. You were so close to, to touching me and coming into contact with the God of the universe. And Moses, the only thing that is keeping you from me is a very thin leather, a very thin layer of leather. Take it off so that we can come together. Take it off so that I can be in your life. Take it off so that my holiness can be in your life. And then you can go and be my ambassador. And I feel like there are a lot of us, me sometimes too, that God wants to bring us close and God wants to send us out. But God is saying you, there is something in the way. You, if you don't remove this from your life, I can't get in. It's, it's stopping me. And for some of us, the only thing keeping us from an intimate connection with God is one small little layer of some kind of leather that's keeping God's Spirit from entering in through our feet and just invading our entire body. For some of you, listen to me. God has your attention, but He doesn't have your heart. You see, God got Moses' attention, but he didn't make contact with Moses until Moses removed what was standing between him and God. He had his attention. They were having a conversation, but they hadn't come into contact with one another yet. And there are some of you here today, God has your attention, but he doesn't have your heart yet. Because you've got a sandal that's keeping God's spirit from just invading your body. Maybe it's a bad experience. And that bad experience is keeping you from everything God has for you. Maybe it's a bad attitude about something that's keeping God's spirit out of you. Maybe it's a bad relationship that has you so distracted or that's keeping you so distracted that you can't move forward with God. Maybe it's bad habits. Something you are not willing to give up. And, you know, you're, you're cool standing and talking to God in the bush, but you and God will never be intimate because you will not give up this thing in your life. Maybe it's some type of sin that you're not willing to confess or give over to God. Maybe it's some type of bad skepticism that you just can't get all the answers so you'll never in faith take off the sandal and see if God really can invade your life. It could only be a thin layer of something. But for some of us, it's keeping God's presence from really transforming our life. You know, I've heard, I've heard this from about a half dozen people. Um, and I've, I always hear it in, in roundabout ways. But it reminds me, and, I, and I'm not saying that this is you, but it, it reminds me of this thought that God has your attention but not your heart. You know, our church is brand new. We're like, I think this month is like, well, last week was our nine-month anniversary. We have a lot of people coming to our church that, haven't been in church for a long time or haven't been in church ever. They're just, you know, God has their attention. They like it, trying to figure out what's going on, but God hadn't grabbed their heart yet. 
And, and I can tell because of statements made like this. And I, I've had these statements made by a lot of people to me. Um, and, and it's interesting. One of the ladies who, who said it to me, I mean, said it best. She, she said this, and others have said this statement. You know, uh, Christian, I used to pray the prayer with you like every Sunday after church. But like my heart never changed until I really felt like I gave my life to Jesus. You know, there are a lot of people here who God has your attention. You want God, you want to go to heaven, but you are not willing to give Him your heart. You know, I read a life-transforming verse this week as I was reading through the book of Job. The book of Job is an interesting book in its own right. But at the end of the book of Job, Job was a guy who had kind of a, a, an informal relationship with God, but then he experienced intimacy with God And Job said something that when I read this verse this week, I thought, I wonder how many people in our church need to make this transition that Job made in Job 42.5. And here's what Job said in Job 42.5 in the New Living Translation, speaking to God. He said, God, I had only heard about you before, but now I actually see you with my own eyes. And I had heard all about you. But now I actually get it for myself. You know, don't be someone who stands at a bush and has a conversation with God, but will never remove the thing that keeps you from having total intimacy with God. If you're one of those people who say, Christian, man, I, I pray, man, every Sunday I pray with you because I want Jesus that much in my life, but I'm not willing to give up X, Y, and Z. Listen, then you, you do not want intimacy with God. You're only hearing about Him. You've not experienced Him. And my prayer for the people of our church this morning is that, man, you would get that thin layer of whatever out of your life so that God's holiness can just invade your life so that he can send you on mission. God wants to get your attention this morning to tell you your life has a purpose and he loves you and he'll use you. And you were not created to just exist. You were created to thrive. There's something for you to do. And if you will remove what keeps you from being really intimate with God, then he will send you, like Moses, to change your world. But he's got to get your attention, and he's got to have your heart. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name right now.